This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Book in Environmental Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. My name is Yakir Englander, your host today. And today we're going to learn and discuss the book Wildness, Relations of People and Place edited by Gavin Van Oren and Joan Hussdorfer, published at the University of Chicago Press in 2017. Whether referring to a place, a non-human animal or plant, or a state of mind, wild indicates autonomy and agency, a unique expression of life. Yet, two constructing ideas about wild nature permit contemporary discussions, either that nature is most wild in the absence of a feeling human present, or that nature is completely humanized and nothing is truly wild. This book charts a different path, exploring how people can become attuned to the wild community or life and also contribute to the well-being of the wild places in which we live, work, and play. Wildness brings together esteemed authors from a variety of landscapes, cultures, and backgrounds to share their stories about the interdependence of everyday human lifeways and wildness. With this book, we gain insight into into what wildness is and could be, as well as how it might be recovered in our lives, and with it, how we might unearth a more profound, wilder understanding of what it means to be human. John Hausdorfer is Professor of Environment, Sustainability and Philosophy at Western State Colorado University. Gavin Van Horn is the Director of Cultures of Conversation at the Center for Humans and Nature. John and Gavin, so good to have you here in the New Books Network. Thank you. Cool to be here, are you here? Great. So, John, let's start with you. Um, when I saw the title of the book, um, of the edited book, and when I think about the wilderness, so many people probably are asking, what is a wilderness? Um, and in your interview, which is the last chapter of the book, you have, you have an interview with um, Rod that maybe you will say a few words about the relationship between you two. And then you also try to speak with your daughter and to explain so what the wilderness is, right? Um, I love the connection between the language wilderness and will, but it's also about emotions. It's also about definitions. And it's also about not having definitions because we human try to cultivate the wilderness by bringing um, definitions, right? And there is something about nature which is beyond that. And I really saw how you try to capture it. So let's try today to capture it as much as we can. Yeah, and I love that you opened with 
you know, asking me how I explain the complexity of the book to a child, because you're right, it does cut through definitions. You know, on one hand, the book Wildness is, is not called Wilderness for a reason. You know, the central question of the book for me is how do we find and fight for wildness everywhere? Right. Right? And that can range from the designated wilderness areas on open lands of the American West and the Rocky Mountains where I live, all the way to the south side of Chicago in some of the communities that, that my partner Gavin works in, right? And what's the common thread between the big wilderness area and the wildness found in the south side of Chicago? To me, wildness is any community, system, or being that can renew itself, right? Something that's wild can renew itself. The poet Gary Snyder says there's wildness in us because we don't have to think to breathe our next breath. We renew ourselves. We're wild. The universe, right, um, has that wildness of self-renewal. An ecosystem in Yosemite National Park, right, or where they reintroduced the wolves in Yellowstone, has that self-renewing renewing ability. And so, you know, at the end of this book, I end up with Roderick Fraser Nash, who's legendary. He wrote Wilderness in the American Mind. He, he wrote the, the sort of preeminent history of the wilderness idea in America and argues that that's America's greatest revolution, right? It's going from um, seeing the continent and the colonial area as a land of temptation and, and Satan, uh, when in fact it was the homeland of diverse cultures, all the way to seeing it as a space worthy of protection as a wilderness. And I, I sort of tangle with my friend Rod Nash, who I know because we both ski on the same mountain and, and he helped me think through the future of my academic program. He's one of the founders of Environment and Sustainability. I teach Environment and Sustainability. And he and I have always argued over wilderness in, in a friendly way, but I, I've always found the wilderness idea problematic in that we're talking about the homeland of 350 different language groups, you know, Native American cultures who shaped the biodiversity uh, through cultural intelligence on the land of an entire continent. And I don't know what it's like to have my homeland um, called someone else's wilderness, but I do know from our Native American authors in this book that it's an offensive uh, colonialist imperialistic notion. So Rod and I have this argument over wilderness, and, and I try to find common ground with him around this idea of wildness. Like, yes, you can find self-renewal in a wilderness area. You also can find it on a working landscape. You can find it in a city. And that's the future of wildness, is people finding their own renewal through finding these spaces with self-renewal. And so the last words of the book are me and my daughter. I think at the time she was seven. and I had just working with my partner, Gavin, we just looked at this whole spectrum, right? From wilderness to wildness with all these definitions. And it, and it comes down to me kind of learning from Rod. And I say, for me, it comes back to the answer I almost gave when my daughter, Adelia asked me what wilderness was. Looking out uh, from 12,000 foot Crested Butte Mountain, quote, wilderness areas tell the story of people deciding to slow themselves down before taking everything to learn from the world with humility rather than with just desire. And I think that that's what wildness does for us. Not only is it about every landscape that we inhabit being able to renew itself, not only is it about how we renew ourselves from fighting for those landscapes, but wildness gives us an opportunity to pause and to rebuild our relationship with the world through humility rather than desire. And what do we need to do, John, when we pose? I think this is something Gavin's really good at. Um, and Gavin, I'll let you talk about this. But what Gavin's taught me is when before he writes, anytime before he writes, he goes through a brief kind of five senses meditation, taking in the place um, and letting the, the will of the place speak to him through all of his senses. He's not the only will in the situation. Gavin, maybe you could talk about that a bit. What you mean, I, would, I would love to, if you can wild. speak about the pose. And also, if since we have listeners from all over the world, 
I wonder, Gavin, if you can also speak about the questions that people in the Middle East, in Europe, in South or North Asia, what are the questions that we need to ask ourselves as a society, as a human community, around this tension between wilderness and wilderness and the wildness and wilderness and about this pose? Sure, thanks. Thanks, Shakir. Um, so uh, let's start with the, what you called the pause, which I think is a nice uh, way of, of putting it because um, instead of um, sort of wildly, uh, you know, the, the metaphor that comes to mind is that a folksy saying, a bull in a china shop, you know, instead of um, simply, you know, coming into a space and sort of, uh, you know, puffing out our chest and, and just making a wreck of, of what is there, we're, we're pausing. And the, that pause involves, as John said, a, an amount of humility, which is listening, right? Um, listening for the stories that are pre-existing in that place, that pulse through that, um, that place, that landscape. Um, those are human stories, but they're also non-human stories. And we shouldn't forget that we aren't, we aren't the only species um, on this planet or in any given place. In fact, far from it, we're, you know, we're just one among many. And all of those various species have their stories as well. And sometimes their own languages and cultures as well. I don't think we should um, think of that as exclusively a human possession. Um, the point here is that we are in conversation with any place that we're a part of, that it's not simply a monologue where we're coming and we are directing the show um, from the get-go. We might think we are, we might you know, presume that, but part of the effort of this book is to, um, to get us uh, not only to begin to question that uh, perspective, that assumption, but to begin to move into what you call the pause or what John would, um, you know, identify as an ethic or a practice. Um, and part of that practice is a conversation with the landscape. And so I want to emphasize that word because it highlights in, in the very etymology of that word, it's a matter of being with, right? conversation or turning with and to turn with the land, which um, one of the authors quite explicitly talks about in their essay, Kurt Miney talks about the driftless area in Wisconsin and how those farmers, um, and that's a good example of a working landscape. So this is not a wilderness area. This is very much uh, people are, um, you know, making their living and their livelihoods from this landscape. But the way that they did that is they had to learn how to, it's a very, um, the terrain is very uneven in the driftless. It's bluffs and valleys. And you can't simply, as you can in Illinois, which is much flatter, simply go in with a plow and plow uniform rows, you know, of, and, and plant corn and soybeans. So those uh, farmers in Kurt's essay, and he does such a, uh, just a, an excellent job of, of highlighting the way that they had to turn with the land. They had to do what is called contour plowing. You know, they had to follow the landscape's lead in order to make a living in that landscape. And that meant getting to know what that landscape required of them. So that is a kind of physical conversation with the landscape that, you know, John and I highlight quite a bit uh, throughout the book. One of the themes is that it's not a zero sum game. You know, it's not simply humans win or nature wins or uh, humans uh, economically uh, profit or nature is healthy. It's not an either or. There's not a duality. There is a mutual flourishing that is possible. And so I think each of our essays really in, it, in its own way in this book highlights and emphasizes that there can be mutual flourishing. 
I think in our day and age, we're sort of used to, <clears throat> with the obvious um, bad news that we're inundated with on a daily basis and our global access to that news, it can be very disheartening. It can be psychologically paralyzing even. Um, and we see instance after instance from, you know, the Amazon, you know, forest being cut down to, um, you know, sea levels rising and, and swallowing um, island countries. You know, we see these things every day. And so there's no dearth of bad information out there. But, and we shouldn't ignore that or, or um, discount that. But that's not the only story that can be told about human beings. There's also these stories of mutual flourishing that we try to highlight in our book to say, there are other models, there are other ways of being human. You know, we don't have to do it this way, you know, in a colonial imperialist mindset. You know, there are plenty of other models where people in their um, communities are um, working with the land and respecting and honoring that land and are flourishing because of it. So anyway, to go back to that word conversation and that idea of turning with. Yes. Um, so that pause that you mentioned is that first step in how do we not simply impose our own will upon the landscape? How do we make it, a, a, as John often says, how do we co-create wildness? Um, and to do that, we have to be a partner that's willing to listen. And so it's helpful for me to think about uh, if we want to take it down to from a less sort of abstract or conceptual level to our individual uh, you know, behavior. It's helpful for me to think about that conversation as our bodies are instruments. Um, in other words, in that breathing in and breathing out, in that opening up of the senses that we are actually uh, receiving the, um, the stories or the, the, the other stories that are around us. And so that, again, not a monologue, it's at least a dialogue. It's actually a multi-part symphony. <laughs> uh, you know, there's an orchestra. Gavin calls, it, Gavin, Gavin calls it a story shed. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation, maybe, yeah. but go ahead with the orchestra. That's right. So, <laughs> so think about, you know, you, you can think of yourself as any sort of instru musical instrument you want to. I think maybe it's, it's probably easiest to think of ourselves because there's no uh, notes involved uh, necessarily, although John might disagree with me as a drummer, but to think of yourself as a, as a, as a drum head, like your skin is literally receiving the signals that are, are around us. And so our skin is not a barrier. It's a membrane. It's a, it's a receptive, um, it, it's a receptive instrument to, uh, to those voices and to those stories and to those musics around us. And so we can fine tune that over time. We can, uh, through the practice of, of perceiving the kinds of wildnesses that we're talking about in this book, I think it's one of those things where the more you do it, the more you receive, you know, it, it sort of opens uh, exponential, you know, uh, windows uh, onto this, uh, this world that we're a part of. You know, Akira, if I may, um, what, for me, what Gavin's getting at is, is energy, you know, um, Aldo, Aldo Leopold, the American conservationist philosopher who died in 1948, and he talks about the land Right. He talks about, you know, every species, including humans, you know, um, as a fountain of energy from from soil to, to plants to you know, insects, small rodents, animals, carnivores back into the soil, receiving energy from the sun, exchanging that energy through a whole system. And to me, that's wildness. That's why I keep emphasizing wildness is a self-renewing system. Energy. I guess I have a lot to learn about energy, not just in the sense of physics, but, you know, a physicist and philosopher from India, Vandana Shiva, has a chapter in wildness in which she really gets at wildness as energy that we can co-create with. Um, so uh, she says, when I talk about the infinite creative energy of the universe, I am talking about Gaia's self-organizing energy, right? Self-organizing energy. That's wildness. 
uh, the creative human energy to work and to produce, to organize and transform. In India and around the world, this human energy has helped cultivate the self-organizing energy of the world. And she says we can call the energy Shakti, right? Um, a kind of Hindi word for this, this like universal energy. Or, or we can call it wildness, she says. So she's equating wildness and Shakti. In particular, this is still her, in particular, the creative, the creativity, innovation, and decision-making power of women who still produce 80% of the world's food has significantly driven the world's biodiversity. The majority of the 80,000 plant species that humans have cultivated have emerged from the self-organizing living energies of women. In other words, Shiva says, if we're going to redefine wildness, we have to simultaneously redefine humans as co-creators of wealth with nature. We both rely on and co-create wildness when our living energies work with the living energies of the earth. And I think that that's what Gavin's talking about being receptive to through all the senses. Yesterday, I was, I actually thought of Gavin. I was on a 12,000 foot peak with my dogs. So I climbed up it so I could ski down it. Um, and, and I did the, the five senses mindfulness exercise that Gavin does and was brought to the energy of that snow, right? It's mid-May. It was already 45 degrees. You could hear the trickles of snow melt the first trickles of the American West. And think of that energy that builds up to fuel life, to fuel culture, to fuel biodiversity. Um, you could just feel that, that wildness. And it wasn't the fact that I was looking across the valley at a wilderness area. Wilderness is just a zoning term. That's what, you know, wilderness is a zoning term, an area of public land, right, in which you cannot have mechanized vehicles or industry. It's just a zoning term. And, and wildness is so much bigger because it's about energy. Mm. I love it. And I love that in your book, you, you bring so many different voices like you have from scholars, from people who live different kinds of lives and the stories and narratives. And I have a whole page with quotes from the book that I want to touch with you. And we will, of course, we'll touch on a few. But and, and I want to walk with you and I want to mention one thing that as I was listening to you, there is a beautiful Jewish um, Midrash, which is in, an interpretation. And the question that the rabbi are asking is why God create humanity in the last moment of the six days, right? Like why at the end? And the rabbi said, because it's very important for humanity to remember that if you behave with nature in the right way, everything was created in a way for you that you can have a dialogue with. However, if you do not have the right dialogue and you try to occupy nature, so even a mosquito, with all due respect, was born before you. And I think that it's a very good reminder. And, and I want to, to come back, John, to something that you said, and, and please, any one of you, now we will open the mic. So whoever wish, just jump and, and share more. Um, you mentioned that in the dialogue with, um, with the writer, she said that there is something about the energies that coming and change. And I think that something about Western economy that become now in part of the most of the world that we know, right? The, the way how we think about economy, that we don't want change. We want it in a way to make sure that the oils that we get today, we will get at least the same amount tomorrow. And the amount of fruits that we got last summer, we will get it also in this coming summer. And there is something in nature that is, tells you, I have rhythm. It doesn't work like that, my friend. Um, unless you force me, unless you force me to be there. And it's also about the human experience, right? I mean, I think that in a way we can go to nature and we can just walk and every day we will find different trees and different flavors, but we have the trails to make sure that you will not be lost, which means that there is something that we all 
so afraid about the invitation, but also the scary invitation, that nature tells us there is no only consistent, there are changes. And you also, if you join me, something in you will, will change and lost, but you also will gain. And I wonder if you can, after seeing so many different colors and narratives, how we should create this dialogue? Yeah, it's a beautiful question, really. And for me, wildness, um, you're talking about sustainability, right? This notion of through efficiency, we can sustain specifically how we're living now. And, and, and without really taking a hard look at the deeper human story. And, and you were just talking about your rabbi and, and saying, there, you know, we, we came last as a reason we came last. Over the weekend, I was reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Creating Sweetgrass. In it, she talks about the Anishinaabe, uh, a sort of Midwestern American Indian creation story, and, and talks about how humans come last and have to learn from the rest of creation how to live, right? Um, that's very different from either domination or stewardship from Genesis, right? There's been that old debate around Genesis in the Hebrew Bible. Is that a command for domination or, or for stewardship? And I think this third way that both your rabbi and, and Robin Wall Kimmer are getting at is really important. This notion of we showed up last. So every living beings our elder that we must, as Gavin would say, listen to, um, and, and, and find our, find our instrument in the orchestra, as Gavin says. And I, so I think it's really a question rather than about efficiency, right? To keep the same old story going. It's about redefining our place, our story. And, and I think that story is the co-creator story that Dr. Shiva talked about in the, the, the passages read. One of the authors in here is from Mexico. He's a, a indigenous Mexican, now a professor at Cal State East Bay, Enrique Salmon. And I love it because the book's called Wildness, but the opening line from him is, there is no word for the concept wild in my native language. Right. Right. And wild immediately suggests something outside of human and therefore human outside of that orchestra. And he goes on to suggest a new, an old story that could be a new story. Right. He says, um, the Raramuri, this is people, are a large population of people indigenous to the Sierra Madre Mountains of Chihuahua, Mexico. The region is also known as the Sierra Tarahumara. And he ends up saying um, that for the longest time, the conservation and environmental movement assumed that the human environment interface always resulted in negative outcomes for the land. Right. So our best that we can do is efficiency, like you're saying it here. But Enrique changes that and says the last 200 years of exponential human population growth, coupled with the mass expansions of industry and globalization, has certainly done little to balance out the question. As a result, until recently, researchers had not considered the possibility that humans could actually enhance their landscapes, that human communities might actually play a role in increasing diversity or that humans are essential to the ecological functioning of a landscape. He says, I suggest that human communities could be a keystone species. That's a new story. That's the story of co-creation of wildness with the energies of the universe. That's a new, but yet very ancient, right, across the world <laughs> um, story. That's far more inspiring, by the way, than the story of efficiency. The story of efficiency is you can do less bad. That's not a story that's gonna move cultures and social movements for radical change on behalf of social ecological health. But the story of you could be a co-creator of the energies of the universe with the wild world in a way that requires you to wake up your wild mind, you can become necessary from the point of view of ecosystems. That's an inspiring story. Thank you. Gavin, there is a whole section in the book um, that I want you to lead us into, which is the urban wild. And you also contribute um, um, the chapter around um, healing the urban wild and help us. Most of the listeners, I believe, living today in cities, many of them in big cities, right. um, in different places in the world. 
it's in in most of them or all of them we don't see the stars at night and um, we pay a price however they are seeds of change that i think we see in many cities um, and the desire of people not only to go for a vacation to nature but to start having dialogue inside the cities in nature yes. and i wonder today is a jewish holiday of shavuot which is when the jews got the ten commandments i wonder what will be the ten suggestions that <laughs> and, and we don't need to count but what are the <laughs> points that you bring so beautifully in the books in in this section of the book and what are the suggestions that you will give people who live in cities to yeah. think and even to do in order to start having a new dialogue thank you for that question because it, it's such a critical question and as you say if for no other reason than the numbers of people that live in cities in our contemporary world um, and it was really important to john and i that section of the book was there from the beginning because we wanted in some ways to confound that duality that a lot of people carry around in their heads of the city is a place of anti-nature <laughs> and real nature can't be found in an urban area. And I will um, admit that that is a story that I carried in my head until uh, I moved to Chicago. And um, for me, the ideal was a kind of, uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau, you know, cabin in the woods rather than, um, or, you know, a place, uh, you know, like Gunnison, Colorado, uh, you know, where John lives, um, uh, was much more attractive to me as a quote unquote, you know, nature lover or environmentalist, um, than the, uh, prospect of living in an urban area. But in the course of living in Chicago and getting to know my non-human neighbors um, and getting to see the greenways and the blueways, the, the rivers and the, the trail system throughout Chicago and Lake Michigan itself, which is a massive body of water um, that the city owes its existence to, um, helped me to integrate what were once um, uh, disparate landscapes in my mind and to think of the city as a form of habitat um, and maybe uh, a form of habitat dominated by human presence, but that still was wild in the, the ways that we've been talking about. And sometimes, um, I think that your question is so critical because I think that our strongest intimacies, our strongest relationships happen close to home. So if most people are living in urban areas as they are, um, you know, percentage wise, then if they're going to have a sense of the wildness and the beauty and the, um, of nature, then I think that those relationships that are close at hand are going to be the most important for fostering that kind of sensibility. So, you know, how do we surround ourselves in small ways uh, with and immerse ourselves in wildness when we're in, in an urban area? And that can be very simple. That can be, you know, our balcony and, you know, the plants that we, that we cultivate on our balcony. It can be our backyards. It can be those, you know, uh, those steps that we take away from our, uh, our apartments, our condos, our, or um, our dense environments. And it can be the very street corners. I'll tell you a story about, um, that I think captures this really well. There's a woman I know in Chicago um, who uh, became interested in beekeeping, right? And on the basis of that interest, once they had hives in their backyard, and, and this is not far from downtown Chicago, um, 
they started thinking about, well, what, where are the bees going to forage, you know, for their food? And, um, and so they began the, the, a sort of switch, you know, uh, occurred in their heads about looking for habitat, looking for where are these bees going to go? So thinking like a bee, you know, Aldo Leopold talked about thinking like a mountain. This is thinking like a bee. So they started to think about their neighborhood around them and to map out where the native plants were in their neighborhood. And so that's a kind of, um, you know, an assessment of what's there. But then they took it a step further. Well, how can we actually create habitat in our neighborhood? So these unused street corners where there was just, you know, sort of buckled pavement or, you know, kind of uh, weedy uh, plant species that had, had, had come in and were, was growing there. They um, enlisted the help of their neighbors and they adopted street corners in their neighborhood and families, three or four families would be responsible for a street corner to plant native plants and, um, and to think like a bee, to think like insects, to think like bats, you know, to think, um, and they, transform these street corners. And then on the basis of that, they created what they called a pollinator pathway through their neighborhood. And so I think this is an interesting uh, example where, uh, you know, once our vision is changed, once our perception is, is attuned to wildness, a very urban neighborhood can become, what are the opportunities here to create spaces for non-human species? And of course, the benefits of that, you know, are well documented in terms of human health and human psychology. Um, you know, people want to live next to green spaces and an economic argument could be made. I'm not going to make it here because I don't care about the, I mean, the, the economics of, you know, real estate development. Uh, you know, what's important to me is to say, when we open those uh, spaces, when we co-create, when we work with the energies of a place, uh, as John put it, then we can create uh, a habitats where diverse forms of, of non-human life are not only um, accepted, but welcomed and, uh, and celebrated. And so our cities, you know, as we scale that up, our cities can be those kinds of thriving habitats. And it's really a matter of not just building for human beings, not just building on a straight straight line. You mentioned, um, why do we, uh, you know, want that consistent, you know, uh, you, you, you mentioned a very static, you know, right. world worldview, you know, why are we afraid of change? Why yeah. are we, you know, and I, in my mind, there's, there's so, something of a metaphor there, you know, when our cities are built solely for efficiency, they reduce the life around them. Um, they don't have to be built that way. They can be built by turning with the land. Um, and there are, are really interesting, not only architectural examples of that, but it's really a matter of knowing that we aren't the only species in town, so to speak, <laughs> and to celebrate that through the physical spaces that we are responsible for creating. Gavin, Gavin published a book called The Way of Coyote, um, shared journeys in the urban wilds, which is, you know, really beautifully done. Um, and it ends with uh, sort of Lao Tzu, Coyote, and Aldo Leopold walk into a bar. <laughs> right? uh, but, but, you know, like Gavin said, we're not the only species in town. There are, what, Gavin, like over 3,000 coyotes in Chicago. And they're caught on camera trap, stopping at stoplights at two in the morning and crazy things like that. And it's really incredible to be in Chicago. There's a man who has a chapter in wildness with Mike Bryson, a, a black man named Michael Howard, who's been just brilliant at sort of, you know, fighting and find, fighting for and finding wildness everywhere. And on the South side, um, in the Fuller Park neighborhood, he's fought for just a couple acres and turned it into an incredible social mm -hmm. ecological habit. At where coyotes hang out and red tail hawks circle and yeah he gets and their grandparents reconnect with the land and it, yeah those are the stories that really excite me 
And, and as John well knows, you know, he, in that story, Michael Howard's story, that is a lead contaminated neighborhood that's been severely abused that, you know, um, that uh, predominantly black people live there and it's no accident that they do. As, as we know, environmental justice in our, in our cities is, is a, uh, you know, it's a systemic problem, but the, the story is one of hope. He's taken a lead contaminated area, a much abused area. And just as we said, you know, he's, uh, you know, in terms of uh, this idea that humans co-create and can create mutual flourishing has not only restored that land, but has become an anchor in that community of social restoration. So sorry to jump in there, John, but I just wanted to no, mention no. The, that kind of flip. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, it, it also brings about the renewal of human creativity and shaping their neighborhoods. And again, that's a form of wildness. Um, in Kimberer's book over the weekend, she said that the, in the Apache language, the root for mind and land are the same. You know, kind of like Gavin's talking about that turning in the land, the turning of the mind with the and that thinking like a bee or Leopold's thinking like a mountain. Um, as we bring wildness to our urban spaces or, or fight to introduce wolves to our wilderness zoned lands or anything in between, right? There's, there's chapters in here about, you know, working landscapes and, and using livestock to increase the diversity of grasslands and restore the prairie through really innovative uh, food systems <clears throat> that creates habitat. All these ways in which we are bringing back ways in which the land can renew itself, but we're also awakening our mind's creativity, either through discovering ancestral instructions as Robin Wall Kimmerer does, you know, with a Menominee in Wisconsin and how to treat and care for and co-create wildness with a forest. <clears throat> or Bandana Shiva does at Gangotri Glacier with the rediscovering the, 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 the energy of the first trickles of the Ganges. Um, or, right, the way Gavin and I are talking about um, with people like Michael Howard, we're awakening the wildness of our minds. And I think that's really useful. Maybe a useful place to close is um, for everyone to realize that finding and fighting for wildness everywhere is, is good ecologically. It's good socially, but it's also in a consumer society in which we're asked to just be bodies that consume bodies. Um, it's a gift to our minds, you know, and yeah. that's where the wildness, the land, the wildness of the mind need each other. And I think that there is one more element and uh, maybe we'll close with that in, in if you wish to, yeah. to say something um i think that when we don't have this relationship so we try to consume more because we feel that we are lacking of something and i think that one of the many gifts that the books that you edited bring brought to me is understanding that in a way by having this relationship with the wild, you also have relationship with your ancestors. It's not, it's not only the relationship with nature as we think about nature, but it's also the layers that we carry with ourselves, right? It's like, as one of the people who, who, who um, was mentioned in the book, like when I go to nature, I go, I never alone. Like someone asks them, anthropologists, um, they ask, like, you're not afraid to go alone. And they didn't understand what does it mean to be alone in nature? I mean, everything speaks there. And I think that one more element is that if you are open enough, and I now speak, I only quote, I don't speak for myself, is like your ancestors are not only the narratives of the humans before you, but it's also the narrative that of nature that is around us. And then in a way you don't need to consume so much because you are not alone. Like you don't need more layers because you really, really can enrich yourself by the deepness of everything that is around us. But it demands 
and, and maybe I want to end with that, and please, I want you to end, but um, there is something that I feel that we need to have now for many of us, leap of faith. It's not leap of faith in God or religion or anything, but it's leap of faith in life. And I almost feel sadness to say that I need to have leap of faith in life. But I think it's something that it's a walk that you invite and the book invites me and I'm sure many of the readers, readers and listeners to do. Well, that's beautiful. And that the so, so one of the chapters in there, right, is one in which I learn a lot from the indigenous activist Winona Leduc, right? And the opening line of that chapter is, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Uh, which is our next book coming out, uh, geez, next week. Whew. And May 25th. It just means that we will talk again. That question is so humbling. You know, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Um, not only in terms of seeing yourself as always and already an ancestor, even if you have kids, even if you're never remembered, you're still living a stamp, leaving a stamp on your society, on the land that's going to shape the world beyond you, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. It's very existentialist in that sense, right? There is no exit from being an ancestor. So you might as well try to be deliberate about it. It's more humbling, right? When one recognizes that we have human and greater than human ancestors, right? And we are an ancestor to the human and greater than human world. And in that chapter, a man named Michael Dahl, who first poses the question to me, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? I learned that for him, and this is not an abstract question, that for him, this is answered in the land. And, and for him to be a Anishinaabe, he's in Minnesota on the White Earth Reservation, he says he needs to have, you know, wild rice uh, in his stomach during the wild ricing moon in, in August. And, and that's that cultural keystone of rice, you know, their creation story as a, as a culture. They, they were told in prophecy to move west until they found the food that grew in the water. And that's just who, who they are. And that wild rice is being threatened by things like climate change and acid rain and, and corporations patenting wild rice made in ponds in California. And so to be who he is, to be a good ancestor, there has to be wild rice. And so that's a leap of faith, right? Yes, he's, you know, supports uh, climate solutions and, and, and continues to teach the next generation the importance of rice and their language with words like menu minike, which means so much more than just ongoing ricing. And everyone has to ask themselves in thinking about being a good ancestor and how the land teaches us to be good ancestors, no matter where we're living, as Gavin would say, we all have to ask ourselves, what is our rice? You know, what is our version of what Michael's found from the instructions from that rice? For me, I've already said it's, it's snow, you know, it's being up at 12,000 feet yesterday and doing that meditation and smelling the, 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 the fungal smell that comes out of the snow in May and it's melting, right? Feeling the wind on my face that only happens when heat's rising from the snow in spring, right? Um, from, from hearing that trickle of the, first, of the first drops of water for the whole West, et cetera, that, that's my rice and it's a leap of faith. You know, it's quite likely that we'll have 50% less snowpack by the time my grandkid wants to ski that mountain um, due to climate change. And so it's not a leap of faith in that I've given my career to fighting climate change, but it is a leap of faith in that I'm only one person and I, ha I have to act as if that wildness will always be there um, rather than acting out of a sense of emergency or crisis um, because guilt and fear from crisis is a, unsustainable fuel for action. Whereas faith in that multi-sensory chorus and our place and faith that we have a place in it and faith in the notion that that snowpack needs me, that the ecosystems of the West need me. It's not just me doing less bad, it's me becoming a keystone species. That faith reawakens the most ancient of human stories, that, that, that we are the last created to be co-creators. Gavin. It's lovely, John. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, um, and I love that we're ending with the the question of ancestors, and 
I love what you said, Yakir, about um, to to emphasize that it's not just human ancestors. It's not just one particular cultural lineage, you know, that we're a part of. That is that is one aspect of who we are as human beings. But there are these more than human beings and forces that are just as much our ancestors and the future uh, and the ancestral ancestral legacy that we will leave. You know, we're just a point along that continuum, right? And that is not some, you know, abstract spiritual belief. That is physically, I was thinking about the ancestors that we carry in our bodies. Like we have the kingdom, if, if Lynn Margulis is to believe, be believed and our cells are um, a partnership, you know, our mitochondria come from the kingdom Archaea, you know, if all the bacteria within us are, you know, um, that make up our bodies, so much of the cells of our bodies, the very cells of our bodies are made up by other kingdoms of life, or we should call them kingdoms, right? Um, and so we carry that ancestral legacy within us, and then and and we leave that, uh, as John said so eloquently, um, you know, as we think about the future ancestors. Um, so I think that that's uh, that that uh, notion, um, that understanding, and that emphasis is throughout our, is throughout this book, wildness of the more than human ancestral community that we're a part of, and the stories that that we um, that we contribute to. Kevin, John, thank you so much for coming to the New Books Network and for editing this incredible book. It was our pleasure. pleasure. It was wonderful. Thank you for having us. It's an honor. Thank you.